Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. I'm Clint Emerson, and welcome to season two of Can You Survive This Podcast, where the interview is just as dangerous as the scenarios I put my guests through. From hostage situations to natural disasters, carjackings, active shooters, and more, if you're looking for the skills necessary to survive these situations, then this is the show for you. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Clint, and thank you for listening to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? We are doing a compilation of the greatest hits, if you will, of the past. And we thought, hey, why not give you a taste of the best interviews you may have missed, the best survival stories and tips you may not have paid attention to last time. So hold on and get ready for Can You Survive This Podcast's Greatest Hits. But yeah, the day we were supposed to die, is, it was the day that we rode motorcycles through what we called the hot gates um, in, in northern Afghanistan. And uh, yeah, so there was, you know, we were, my last deployment, I was on a team that was doing the uh, villa stability operations. Yeah. And, you know, working with locals to like basically create their own security force to manage their own, you know, AO. We kind of went back to what... Um, what some of your brethren and uh, and uh, special forces did and early on in uh, Afghanistan, like the whole 12 strong movie, mm-hmm. you know, kind of working with the locals to fight, you know, yeah. a, a and uh, so that's what we were doing. We had a 300, 300 something man, you know, a little surrogate force and uh, you know, and a, and a few, you know, Marine Raiders. And so we, and we had done really well and multiple teams have been in this area kind of cultivating these relationships and establishing the safe space in this district. And uh, so, you know, the higher being higher, we're like, well, if you guys are done so well, let's do better. Let's push, let's push it out there and let's just keep going. Um, But they, you know, at the time they didn't want to allocate any more money. They didn't want to allocate any more guns. They didn't want to allocate any more support. They just wanted us to do with what we had. Right. Figure it out. uh, so if you can imagine the hot gates, like everybody knows, like the 300, the hot gates, there was a place in Afghanistan that looked very similar to that. Um, you had a river on, on one side, then you had the mountain that came down and met the river. And on the other side, you had the mountain that came down and, and met a trail as well. And that trail was about good enough for like a side-by-side and a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had, you know, good reporting that that trail that was for the motorcycle and for the side-by-side had IEDs on it. But we had a good belief that, you know, the motorcycles were light enough that they probably wouldn't trigger the IED. So yeah. it was safe enough. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about but the this, remote detonations. Theory, yeah. <laughs> right. So, um, so, and then there's a village on the other side of this, this choke point that we were supposed to go yeah. work with. And my whole thing was like, Hey, what do we have to offer this village? Well, nothing. We're just going to go talk to them. So you're going to take all of our people and put them through this choke point so that we can just go talk to these people and offer th- and talk to them about security and say, you know, we have nothing to offer you. Cool. Okay. That sounds like a great plan. Um, so we go down there, we stage, um, cloud cover rolls in, uh, you know, it's low, co- low cloud cover. So we've got no real support there. Um, we've got some more tubes set up, but they're above the, above the clouds. So in my mind, it's like no go criteria, right? It's like, mm-hmm. this is done. Like we pack up and head home, you know, somebody gets hurt. Who knows what's going to happen? No, no, that's not at all. No, that's not what we're going <laughs> to do. Marines. We're going to push. We're going to push the fight. Clint. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, and the, 
to, to, to ease everybody's heart, nobody gets hurt here. So like, this is a, you know, otherwise I yeah. probably would be telling the story. So nobody gets hurt. Everybody came home. Um, but so we get to, you know, we're staged. So everybody knows that we're there, right? Yeah. It's broad daylight. We're on motorcycles. We've got a huge force stage at the, at the foot of this, uh, of the hot gates here. And we're about, we're ready to push, we're ready to push in there. So the enemy is aware. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. not, it's not a secret. So what happened? What do you think happens as soon as we breach that little, that choke point? Gigs began up, fire. Right? Yeah, yeah. Gigs up. We're going through. And, uh, to make, to make, uh, to make it worse, my, one of my best friends, um, he drove this, I had a premier, which we called the Afghan road King. I'm sure you've rode around on him yeah. as well. And he had a parwaz. Uh-huh. And that was the more, I think it had like 25 more CCs or 50 more CCs. I don't remember exactly. Somebody listening will probably know. Yeah. Um, but it was more like a, more a beefed up mountain bike, you know, or, or a dirt bike version of it. Yeah. And uh, mine was like more of like an Afghan road king, real right. light, small, comfortable pegs, you know. Um, and his looked more like a, almost kind of like a Kawasaki dirt bike. Right. But the thing was a complete piece of shit, man. Like it, like shit was falling off of it. It was uh, constantly having problems. <laughs> I told him to ditch it. He was like, no, it's got skulls and it looks cool and it's blacked out and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and I'm like, but it's a problem. Yeah. So what happens when we breach the hot gates, his battery falls out of its housing and is dragging through the dirt of this small little path where you have uh, a mountain on one side and you have the river on the other side and we're getting shot at where there's supposed to be IEDs in the dirt and it's just dragging behind him by the negative cable. <laughs> I love so it. of course I stop, pull my gun up, you know, I'm returning fire a little bit. He grabs the, he stops, grabs the battery, puts this battery in his lap. Thank God the, the bike's still running. Yeah. And, and he puts it in his lap and he hope we haul ass to the first house and we clear the first house and, you know, we, we keep shooting and everything. And that's kind of, that's our entry into the hot gates. <laughs> uh, and matter of fact, he had a scar. It was the guy I talked about on uh, another podcast. He had a scar. I was shooting M110 SAS suppressed. He was shooting a scar. And he was like, if I'm right here, he was like a foot to my left. Hmm. And I remember shooting across this river and I look, I stop and I look at him and I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah, sure. I'm, I look at him and I'm like, get the fuck away from me (laughs) (laughs) dumping all his brass on you yeah that thing is if if you've ever had a a scar heavy shoot next to you unsuppressed it is so freaking loud and i'm over here with no ear pro with an m110 you know sas suppressed and like it's like nothing right and anyways he just laughs and kind of goes down but there's a lot more to that, but that was probably the, out of all the stupid things that I've done, that was probably one of the hairiest ones that we've done and lived to tell about it. So, yeah, no, that's good. I like the hot gate scenario. People should know 300, but if you don't, it's Spartans. They, uh, they basically leverage that strategy of you can take on thousands if you just force the thousands to come through a funnel. Now right. you're evening the force, right? So, yeah, and I think I tactic. said that in the when we were there. I was like, I think this is in every basic private first class tactical manual of a no no. Right. <laughs> <It's> the first <laughs> thing you avoid a, ch- a choke point. I think that we got taught that somewhere like you know 15 years ago. But whatever. Yeah. The question is: is are we the Spartans or are we the thousand idiots that are about to go through this thing? <laughs> <Right>. yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah. And I know that that advanced sniper school had quite the reputation too, at least when, you know, during my time, it was definitely a premier, uh, school to go to. And I know that it across the forces, people talked about, you know, that schoolhouse and how good it was, um, especially for urban stuff. And, uh, so, you know, you can't talk about snipers and, and sneak and seal stuff without, uh, you know, at least touching on Chris Kyle. Did he ever come through any of your stuff? Yeah, actually, we put him through uh, when I was actually at Trade At. So, as you know, Trade At, um, you go through the basic course, you know, the, the course out here. But then as you're deploying, they do refresh cycles and stuff like that. So, I put him yeah. through some refresh stuff. And uh, I actually put him through some refresh stuff. And I actually built him a clone uh, of the Mark 13s back out there in Coronado. I had a little 
mill and lathe in my garage and work on stuff. And I actually ended up building him a Mark 13 clone, um, identical to the team guy. So that uh, yeah. I think, uh, I just say, Hey, I don't need to know anything about it, but the way I understood it later, <laughs> I think, that, uh, I think he took that, I took that, he took that with him so he could, you know I mean? Do some yeah, good work yeah. with it and hang yeah. on to it. So that doesn't surprise me. I, you know, I no. was at, I was at three with Chris when he was a new guy and then, uh, he was in my sister platoon. I mean, get this, man. Like him and a couple other guys, I used to always just have to remind them when I, once I was in a leadership position, like, okay, your first platoon is going to war. Your first platoon. Okay. And that, and this is when I was on whatever, my third platoon. <laughs> and I had to remind these kids, like, you know how fucking great you've got it? <laughs> like oh, your yeah. first deployment is was either to Afghanistan or Iraq. If you're a SEAL team three, I mean, it was such a, a good deal. And, you know, and uh, I think they get, they got spoiled by it. Right. And then when, as things started to slow down, then they're like, what the fuck? How come we're just sitting around? How come we're not getting to go out and shoot people anymore? <laughs> it's like, wait oh, a minute. Yeah. That's exactly how it is. Most of the time you're lucky yep. if you're getting to pull the trigger. Yeah. They just had good timing on a lot of that stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then Chris, we stayed in touch. I remember, uh, towards the end, even after he was out, he called me and I was still in and, uh, he was like, isn't there like some kind of top secret, just sniper cell that you can hook me up with? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I think you'd have to come in. I think you'd have to come back in the Navy, buddy, if you want that. But, uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was a diehard sniper all the way to the end. Good dude. Oh yeah. Good corn fed Texas kid. What is this about Topaz? A spy story yeah. from when you were a young officer. So I was a young counterintelligence agent in Belgium in the early 90s, and peace was breaking out in quotes, right? The wall came down. There I was, young Captain Costa. I was a counterintelligence agent with badge and credentials. My job was to conduct sensitive investigations uh, to identify, essentially, and disrupt espionage operations being directed against NATO. I was yeah. uh, Supreme Headquarters, Allied Powers, Europe, which is in shape, known as shape in Mons, Belgium. And I was at the head headquarters. In those days, I think we had 16 members of NATO. Each country was responsible for their own counterintelligence. But I was charged with conducting investigations and working with our partners. And uh, at the time, it was fascinating that there was a media disclosure. There were leaks and disclosures. The media kept reporting on codename Topaz. By the way, the Topaz was selected because uh, it was a Hitchcock movie that was about a spy in Cuba during uh, during the the. Cuban Missile Crisis. So it was an ode to a Hitchcock spy thriller. So the media kept talking about the penetration of NATO and the nickname they came up with was Topaz. So we, counterintelligence folks, we knew, we knew there was a penetration of NATO. There was a spy there and we were hunting for that spy. And so wasn't NATO headquarters. So wasn't the intelligence services of multiple countries, Germany, Belgium in particular, and the FBI and the French, candidly. And over, over time, I would create, uh, obviously, lots of paperwork on investigations, and we would have to share that paperwork, sensitive paper, with the NATO Office of Security. And the woman who I dealt with in that office was a secretary, and it turned out that she was married to Topaz, and Topaz was uncovered as a spy, uh, recruited by the East Germans, as I recall. He penetrated NATO. He existed there for, for many years until he was uncovered and arrested. And I had an excellent vantage point to see, you know, treachery first firsthand. First of all, um, Christiane Rupp, who was married uh, to this uh, individual that we call Topaz, her husband, the spy, I could deal with her on a day-to-day -day basis and then later realize that there was a level of betrayal there, not to mention her husband was a serious spy. It was very, very good learning for me as a young counterintelligence officer. 
Of course, there's a lot more detail that I can't talk about here, the kind of the leads that we followed. I did notice that my Belgian counterparts started speaking instead of French, they started speaking German. And it was because they were dealing <laughs> with the West German intelligence services, right? Yeah. So these were some, of, in hindsight, these were some of the clues that I didn't know exactly what was happening, even from an investigative standpoint. So, you know, espionage and topaz is absolutely a wilderness of mirrors. And as a young captain running around Europe in the aftermath of the wall coming down, it was a lot of fun for me to participate, you know, walking on cobble street, cobblestone streets, going to meetings in foggy towns. I won't say where those meetings were in Europe. That was a lot of fun. That was the, the end of the Cold War, except for the Russians never quit, right? Uh, yeah. They, continue to conduct operations as we've learned. You're listening to Can You Survive This Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and share on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. You have to be able to survive the podcast, and that's with a hypothetical survival scenario. And uh, we got a good one for you. So are you ready? All right. I think so. As ready as I'm going to be. <laughs> All right. Here we go. We're going to throw you into one that we've kind of sort of done before. Uh, in fact, it's the same as uh, Pat McNamara's scenario. Uh, so if you listen to that one, then you'll have a little bit of uh, a heads up on how to get through it. But if you don't. Oh, man. Then... I listened to one of the different ones. <laughs> it's all right. Uh, you could have uh, kind of sort of cheated, but you didn't. Man, so, uh, you're, almost made you're it. Fucked. Yep. All right. Here almost we go. Almost made it. <clears throat> it's nighttime. You're relaxed at uh, your remote little location there in Florida. You're alone. Life is good. Not a care in the world. It's one of those moments when you just have a break. Uh, meanwhile, several miles away, a good buddy of yours, we'll call him Jim. Jim. Uh, he's at an ATM machine. And uh, Jim needs some cash, uh, and then he's going to go change it into some $1 bills. Hmm, I wonder why. And then suddenly, an attacker cracks him from behind, right over the head, right? And a scuffle ensues. So now that he's got a little fight going on at the ATM machine. And, oh, and you thought this scenario probably would involve you showing up and being the hero. Uh, it's not going to really go that way. Jim uh, and ends up actually fighting off the attacker, uh, but uh, in a different kind of way. So while you're sitting there relaxed in your lazy boy, uh, you hear some tires screech and someone pulling in to your little driveway, your compound there. And you're like, what the hell is going on? Um, so to quote uh, Stephen J. Daniels, uh, a good friend will help you move. But a true friend will help you move a body, right? So Jim, <laughs> Jim in a panic, explains, the guy tried to kill me at the ATM. Things went a little south, man. So now Jim, of course, needs your help. Jim pops open the trunk, and there it is. The attacker and uh, his lifeless body, right? And at this point, uh, turning Jim away is no option, okay? So... First question, do you, A, get the body out of the trunk and start to strip it down of all its clothes and personal items, or B, move the vehicle around back of the compound, you know, because discretion is definitely necessary? Uh, I would say... <laughs> <laughs> I would move the vehicle, but... This is yeah. Florida, so if you if you shot someone at the ATM who was trying to rob you, you probably wouldn't be in trouble. Why would you throw the body in the trunk to begin with? <laughs> but we passed that point. Like you got stand your ground, dude. You're 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 good to go. So first off, he he's probably lying to me, you know, and, and maybe he did something wrong. But here we are. So we're gonna move the car. Neither one of those would I do. But I would move the vehicle <laughs> around back to a more discreet location. But neither one would I do. Okay, so we've got him on record. He's going to help you yep. if you have a body. Um, okay, right. <laughs> now 
Now that you are in a more discreet position, good answer. Let me mark this down. So that's 10 right. points. 10 questions, 10 points. Okay, you just got to pass. 70, right. I think, is passing in most countries. You got 10. All right, good job. Correct answer is, uh, yeah, get, just get everything out of sight, out of mind, uh, just in case. Now, of course, where you live, I know for a fact nobody <laughs> sees shit going on there. Uh, but anywhere else, yeah, you probably need to get the vehicle out of view so that you can kind of do what you need to do methodically, calmly, and not worrying about third parties seeing what's going on. Okay. Uh, so now that you're in a more discreet position, do you A, pull the body out and start stripping it down of its clothes, or B, tarp the ground and uh, because things are probably going to get a little messy? Yeah, I would tarp the grounds if I was even going to take it out of the vehicle um, because your current location isn't contaminated yet. Only the car is. So we want to reduce contamination of other areas. Well, once again, B, neither one of those would I do, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to pick I'll, I'm going to pick B out of those. Yes. yes. Your attorney is sitting in the room, correct? <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's right. You probably want to glove up and. You know, pay attention to uh, what you're wearing and all that good stuff. Yeah, I'm with you. Put on okay. your science suit. <clears throat> That's right. <laughs> uh, all right. So, okay. You've got that fucker out of the trunk and stripped down. All right. So do you, A, grab a couple of 50-gallon steel drums, uh, or B, get your shovels and start digging? Um, and, uh, you know, remember, we got different ways of getting rid of bodies. Uh, so it's on you to pick uh, which path you want to take right now. I'd say get the drums. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm with you, man. That's definitely get the drums. A, uh, get the drums. Uh, it depends what I'm going to put in those drums. I mean, I forgot the answer, you know, because if I, because if, if, oh my God. Yeah. All right. It's a tough one. Ba yes. So based on where this might be going, <laughs> I'm going to pick A on that one. 50 gallon, 50 gallon drums. You are doing so good, buddy. That is correct. <laughs> yes. Note, land and thermal burials are both possible. Hmm. But in this situation, we want this guy gone. We want right. him to be dust. Right. So yeah, you're going to do a thermal burial uh, using steel drums. So good answer. I love it. Okay. You've got the attacker crammed into one barrel, uh, and personal belongings plus the tarp in the other. All right. So, so far so good. All right. So do you a pour gasoline in those thermal or in those barrels, uh, and get it burning or wait, you're probably going to need something that gets a little hotter. Yeah, I'd probably, I'd probably wait and either get something that gets hotter or get something that uh, is a chemical that would actually just melt the, melt the stuff down into goo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, correct. Yeah, I definitely need something hotter than gasoline. ain't going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Again, good. I think you've done this before. All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's a, that is a good answer. Anybody that was a Breaking Bad fan learned the uh, pros and cons of uh, acid washing uh, a body and bones away. Um, so, yes, you are correct. You want to get something that burns hotter. So you're off to the private airstrip nearby, which I know there's a pri there's an airstrip right there near you. Um, yep. I did witness that. Uh, so, A, you drive up to the airstrip, find a small plane, commandeer some jet fuel, or B, wait, you're going to pull off. You need to, you need to get some distance between you and the airport, so you choose to go on foot. So do you, A, just drive up to the airstrip and commandeer some jet fuel or wait a second, we need to get some distance between us and our next action of grabbing fuel? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to achieve separation. I'm, yeah. I'm going I'm to get some distance. How much fuel do we need, we need to get? Enough to probably burn a body. <laughs> so if we're talking about a couple gas cans, then then maybe we walk in, but if we need to get enough to yeah. fill up a 55-gallon drum, which uh, you probably wouldn't fill the thing all the way up because, you know, fluid doesn't the, – the fumes burn more than the fluid. So yeah. um, 
The only thing with driving up is I don't want to get my license plate or anything like that on camera. So yeah. if I snuck in with with the gas can and got maybe, you know, two, two and a half gallon ones that I could, you know, move pretty fast and stealthily with, not, you know, be walking with a, a giant gas can. Uh, I think that would be the best way to get off the the uh, camera systems. Yep, I agree. You don't want to you don't want to leave a digital trail anywhere. Yeah, you don't yep. want your license plates associated with this. Uh, right. This, yep. this very friendly act. I mean, you're doing yeah. something for your buddy. I mean. <laughs> yeah. All right. That, that Jim, I got to tell you, man, he's always up to <laughs> shenanigans. And probably a good idea to leave all cell phones and anything else that can track you from, uh, uh, you know, behind. And uh, I don't know what kind of car you drive, but uh, pretty much every car built in uh, the late 90s to early 2000s have tracking devices in them, whether you like it or not. Um, and so you got to think about that kind of stuff, too. So we're going to opt for discretion. Uh, we don't want any chances of the security cameras, like you mentioned, uh, linking the vehicle back to us at any given point. Uh, so you pull off the road discreetly, keeping your vehicle some distance away from the airstrip. You approach the airstrip on foot, and uh, with this discretion, then you A, find a small plane and try to pry open the fuel door uh, so that Jim can siphon the fuel. <laughs> or B, you know, take a moment and find a fuel truck. Um... I've never actually siphoned fuel from a plane. <laughs> yeah. So so with that being said, I think I would look for to try to find the other fuel source because I don't I don't know if it's as easy as siphoning fuel from a plane. I've never done that. Oh, the fuel truck would be so much easier than <laughs> siphoning. I mean yes. it, 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 I mean, way freaking easier. I mean, uh, I think it's good to have Jim do that and choke on right. some fuel, but yeah. you know, uh, yeah. yeah, but you know, siphoning regular gasoline isn't that bad, but he, but if he gets a mouthful of JP four, that's gonna jack him up. Oh yeah, that's that's a bad day. If you're not familiar with aircraft, then yeah, finding the fuel truck truck is definitely a much easier way of doing things because you can actually turn a valve, and you know, you're gonna probably. Uh, you know, get your fuel faster, more effective that way without, you know, messing around in the dark with an aircraft. But what's interesting is on an aircraft is the wing, they they have these little spouts and basically it allows a pilot, it, the spout you put a, uh, imagine like a clear test tube that you push up against that spout and it automatically puts fuel into the test tube so you can hold it up to the light and make sure you've got clean fuel. There's no sedative, no weird stuff going on inside the wing. Um, so you could literally just push right up next to that thing and fill up uh, uh, some fuel canisters. But uh, yes, if you don't have knowledge of aircraft, then it's probably much better to go find a fuel fuel truck. Okay. Uh, and plus, a fuel truck probably is going to have fuel in it, whereas an airplane may not. You might have to go around several aircraft to figure this out. And you don't have time for that shit. Um, so you get the fuel and you're heading back. Uh, upon return... Uh, it's now about 3.30 a.m., okay? So once you get back to your steel drums, uh, do you A, you know, light it up, start burning, or B, head to a more desolate and rural location with your jet fuel and your steel drums? For the normal neighborhood, I would say move to a different location for my, for yeah. my neighborhood. I'm in the you middle are. of the forest already. So uh, for general general conversation, I would say move to a discreet location because it's yes. probably going to stink. Well, especially since it's 3.30 in the morning, um, that that light signature, that fire is going to be, I, I, it, it's going to draw um, anybody in like moths to a flame. Yeah. So I'm going to head to a more discreet location. And um, because who knows by then, there might be a little bit of light too. Yeah. Granted, you know, granted I'll be compromising myself because people could see me, but they won't see the fire for miles away either. Damn. It's almost <laughs> as if somebody gave you this scenario ahead of time <laughs> because yes, ding, ding, ding. Desolate location is key. All right. You're doing good, man. You're like hundred percent. Okay. I've, uh, I've totally have never done this and we, we don't do this <laughs> on the property out there. Yeah, you should listen to Pat's, man. It's pretty good because every single question, he's like, now, 
I have to say, I would not do this for real, okay? I would not do this for real. <laughs> he was totally covering himself with each answer. But he got every single question right, so kind of makes you wonder. All right, um, you're in the home stretch, so, yeah, you're doing good. So uh, next, do you, A, wait until about 5, 5.30 a.m. to light it up, or, B, just go ahead and start burning? I would say so, mindset, so you know if the you this. if you burn it during the day, that's more that's more common. Um, people during the day have uh, at least out in the rural area, people do uh, yard you know burns, you know for for um, leaves and all sorts of stuff like that. And yeah. there's not a, much of a light signature. Um, you might have some smoke. In, a, in the day that you might not see at night, but at night you see the big, you see the flames. So I would say it's probably less, uh, smaller profile doing it during the day. So yeah, I'm going to wait. I'm yeah. going to wait once again until there's a little bit of uh, ambient light. Yep. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. This method is going to put off a significant count of a significant amount of smoke. Mm -hmm. Um, so more easily spotted during the day, but it also is going to have this bright burning light right. that's easily spotted at night. So five thirty AM may give you that sweet spot. It's not too dark. It's not too light. It'll minimize the visibility and the signature of both smoke and flame. Okay. Now that you got that body cooking, do you a wait a couple of hours while the contents in the drums burn or just get the hell out of there and leave them unattended? Mm. <laughs> that one's tough. Yeah. Be because if you wait, if I was going to wait, I would wait till it was come all the way through. I wouldn't wait just for a couple hours. If I was going to wait, I would wait all the way through to make sure the yeah. teeth and all that stuff are done, that the clothing, there's no buttons or metal items on the clothing that can be used to track back to a location. So if you're going to wait, you would wait all the way through. But if you're not going to wait all the way through, then don't stand around there. Um, but you, you need it to really, you need to verify that it's completely gone. Bro, I have to wait, man. I mean, I have to. <laughs> I, it sucks that I'm going to have to wait, but I have to wait. I got to make sure this thing for Jim, you know, for Jim. That's for and Jim. I can't just say, hey, Jim, you stay here. I'm going home. That's right. Because I don't trust Jim right now, man. Jim's made some really bad decisions. <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm part of this thing. He drugged me into it. So, oh, yeah. Jim, I'm freaking Damn, hanging Jim. out, man. Yep, Jim is uh, definitely a liability. I got well, six o'clock. You got twelve. You're gonna want to wait for uh, your spot on, uh, especially jet fuel. You know, the goal temperature is about fourteen thousand degrees. I mean, fourteen hundred degrees Fahrenheit is the temperature you're aiming for for femurs and molars to basically turn to dust in a couple of hours. Um, and so. It's uh, there's a little bit of a science to it, you know? Yeah. Um, I would say, I would say too, with that, if someone came up on you and you had the thing burning and you're there and they're like, Oh my gosh, that stinks. Like, yeah, my dog died and we're cremating them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but if you're, if it's just unattended and someone comes up and they're looking around and there's just some barrel in the middle of the woods and there's no one there they're going to be like man we got to put this fire out like who's here or whatever or they might start exploring it where if you're there you can have small talk and hopefully you know um steer the conversation in a way that's beneficial for you yeah that's a good point you have a, a cover for status cover for action right <laughs> so yeah. yeah i'm with you i mean i i may or may not have uh you know used the same thing with, with tests that it was a you know a 200 pound pig uh and which is good representation of a 200 pound body when you're testing this crap out um okay so <clears throat> a couple hours goes by the flames died down uh, you head back to the compound. So next, do you A, send Jim on his way and never speak of this again, or B, make sure to double check no evidence or materials were left behind anywhere. So you got the trunk of Jim's car. Uh, you've got so we you know, didn't, any other... We didn't, 
Sorry, we didn't put Jim in the in the other barrel. <laughs> there you go. Yes. So. <laughs> so Jim made Burn. it out. We didn't. We didn't put Jim in the barrel with him. Okay. So that part's yeah. passed. So here we are. Yeah. You still got old Jim. I mean, he's he's uh he's been a buddy for quite some time. Yeah, and you're right. Oh, he man. might be a liability. But uh, yeah. So be clean. Basically, burn clean, bleach as necessary. Uh. And uh, then never speak of this ever again. But yes, you are spot on, buddy. You did a good job. Uh, um, so for bonus, I think, yeah, you just earned bonus points for, you know, basically let's get rid of Jim while we're at it too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, congratulations, Jim, you have you have survived this podcast. Good job, Rich. <laughs> Thanks, dude. Yep. Go with B. I have to do B. that. I got I to gotta cover... I got to cover all of those uh, steps right there because, damn, man, once again, I'm involved. <laughs> yep. Get rid of all evidence, right? No yep. body, no crime. You've done a yep. good job. So, yeah, let's go back over. You did uh, – you got 10 out of 10, man. You got 100. Ooh. I think Ooh. you are the first guy to get that uh, uh, in uh, interviews thus far. So, all right. Awesome job, Pat. You are right on. A- a true uh what was the movie with wolf we got to call wolf oh yeah i was thinking about that yeah um, <laughs> um, um pulp, pulp fiction pulp fiction, yeah, pulp fiction. you are yeah, wolf yeah, yeah. yeah well good. i was thinking about that when you said jim pulled up in front of my house i'm like hey <laughs> yeah. do i have a sign in my front yard that says blank <laughs> right yeah, yeah. and yeah. then most recently john wick who was the guy what was the name of that company the guys that come up and oh, clean up everything right, for right, a couple right. of yeah, gold yeah, coins yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you have proven to be a pro for that. I think you have a job um, with any of those guys at any given time because, uh, yeah, score of 100. We will be right back after the break. But the differences between the SBS and the SAS, and uh, we know that the SAS is kind of the more popular one that we've heard about for decades. You guys or they were the, I mean, heck, I, I, look up to them, looked up to them throughout my career. You always hear things about, you know, the Brits, the Brit, you guys have been doing it longer when it came to counterterrorism. You had all the experience for a very long time. Um, but what are the, really the big difference between the SAS and the SBS? Do you know what? The only difference between the two, we do exactly the same selection process. So there's a, there's only one tier one um, sort of organization, and that's the SBS, Special Boat Service, and the SAS. The SBS is the Navy Special Forces, yeah. um, and the SAS is the Army Special Forces. So um, exactly the same uh, selection process, and that, at the end, you can sort of pick and choose where you want to go. You know, I was an ex-Royal Marine, so we stay loyal to the Navy. So I stay loyal to to the Navy and went SBS. And normally the Army, if you're ex-infantry or parachute regiment or whatever it may be, you stay loyal to the Army and you go to the SAS. Um, but they're almost exactly the same. But we lead with uh, maritime counterterrorism and the uh, SAS lead when it comes to land options. But in a couple of years, Clint, I think that everything will amalgamate into one fighting unit you know this whole tier one will just amalgamate into into one fighting unit because we do exactly the same um selection process and we as the sbs we led out in afghanistan you know there's not much water in afghanistan but that was our territory for 15 years and for the sas it was iraq so Mm. now you know we come from the air we come from land we come from water you know i would say that the special boat service has the the slight advantage of um, being versatile. You know, we uh, we spend a lot of time on the water. You add water to anything, as you know, Clint, it can become a complete cluster fuck, right? It can really, really mess things up. And if you can operate on water and with water around you, underwater, on top of it, then, you know, you can pretty much operate anywhere in the world. That's what I, what I believe. Um, so we have that advantage of just, you know, that maritime training and also you know when it comes to land stuff and you're nice and dry um you always sort of thank your lucky stars that you're not 
you know, wet, cold, and miserable before you start a task. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about that. And that's a great explanation. So, you know, for, for American listeners, really, the SBS is equivalent to SEAL Team 6, and the SAS is equivalent right. to, like, Delta Force. And, Absolutely. and in, the reality is, is we, we, the United States military, have mirrored a lot of our organizational structure, terminology, I mean, you name it, tactics uh, based on you guys. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a cool history. You know, it was, it was amazing to me the other day to see it in social media. You know, we just celebrated, I think it was uh, the Navy's birthday several months ago, and it was, you know, 200 and whatever years old. And then I saw uh, the Royal Marines birthday. And it, it's a hundred plus years older than our Navy, <laughs> you know, 300 and yeah. something years old. And, you know, it's very telling that, uh, you know, the, the power and the longevity of, of the Brits and you guys being around for so long, it's pretty cool. Um, well, we work closely with, we you know with team six with dev group. Um, we've adapted a lot of drills, especially in that Afghanistan era. Um, we've worked very yeah. closely with dev group and, We've adapted a lot of drills, you know, from the way we enter buildings, the way we fight from the door now, the way we fight from windows, the way we, we roll um, into certain tasks, um, vehicle interdictions, you know, Afghanistan, you know, that sort of came into place. And the drills and skills that we've adapted has been jointly with Team Six, you know, so we work ever so closely together and we've adapted this sort of new age modern warfare through American um, through the Americans yourselves and through the Brits. So um, even though we might be older in in our organization, um, we've worked very, very closely together and we've come up with a highly effective operational close quarter combat drills and skills mm -hmm. um, intertwined with with Dev Group and, and Team Six. So, you know, we can't take all the uh, all the glory, but <laughs> right now it is 50-50 it is yeah. and, um, you know, we, we do... Uh, work closely together and adapt um, everything that we do uh, to fit a modern day battlefield. You ran the Grand Canyon from rim to rim, right? Mm -hmm. Rim to rim to rim. Rim to rim to rim, right? I didn't, yeah. yeah. So how does that work and what's the mileage like? Uh, I don't know my mileage. This was before I was <laughs> wearing any sort of smart watches or anything. That was crazy. And one of the girls that I was with, it was a, I was with a really small team. And one of the girls that I was with, she actually ended up getting hurt. And um, I had to carry her pack as well on the final climb going up. And that was just, man, I, uh, I'll never forget. That was the first long distance endeavor that I had embarked on. And at night going up that final climb, I believe it took us like 12 hours. And at the end, of course, we were going really slow. And we had somebody who was injured with us. Um, injured, but she, it was manageable. Like she just messed up her ankle or something. It's really rocky. A lot of the ground is just broken and uneven. So you have to have really good footwork and be really conscientious of like where your foot placement is mm. the entire time that you're running through the Grand Canyon. And um, I just, man, you talk about your mind playing tricks on you. Um, going up that final climb of the Grand Canyon, you just had so many switchbacks and going back and forth. And I remember I just, my sights were just continuing to look up at the top of the climb. Like it was, it was pitch dark. You couldn't see anything. The stars were out. But every time I would go up on the switchback, I kept thinking that I would see this light at the very top, which would, it would have been like a parking street light. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and then I would come back around and like, I kept thinking that it was getting closed, but like it wasn't. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, dude, you talk about like your mind just like playing freaking tricks on you. And, uh, I just, I held on to like the focus of, of the light no matter. And gradually it just got closer and closer and closer. And then I remember, um, I, I got so far up and I heard someone yell at the top, Ashley Horner. And dude, my, I was like, oh my gosh, we made it to the top. Uh, it was the best feeling in the world. But uh, that was a great experience. I definitely want to do it again. Wow. So you just got to know the right times to go. Those, those switchbacks that you're referring to are basically little donkey trails, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We did pass some donkeys on the way. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, those are narrow and dangerous for sure. And uh, running at night just makes it exponentially more fun, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, what is the most dangerous trick that magicians, generally speaking, you know, have to do? 
I think levitating can be up there because the force required to lift a person is obviously in excess of that person's weight, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it takes more force to lift a person than, than they weigh. So you're dealing with some pretty... You, you, there's there's devices we use for that that can just sever your arm. I mean, they just cut your arm right off, you know? Um, and that is legit dangerous. And it looks beautiful and, and lyrical on the front. And then in where these things happen, it, it's quite dangerous. The other one is um, uh, the bullet catch, you know, that has legitimately killed six or more uh, magicians, you know, um, catching bullets and, and then they, their head catches it or their chest catches it and they die. And uh, there was a really famous magician named there's two there's chingling Fu and chungling su and chungling su got shot after doing it hundreds of times on stage uh there's like debris in the gun or something and it shot him uh he's bleeding out they take him to the hospital and then they realize this famous chinese this famous chinese magician is a white dude named like william robinson and he'd been going around pretending he was chinese to capitalize on uh this asian uh magic that was big at the time um, so th that was one of the greatest deceptions in magic, but he legit died from getting shot, you know, <laughs> on stage. So. Wow. So go through, if someone, for people that are li listening, like go through what, what is the magic? What is a magic catch? Like go, just go through this general mechanics what or is, a what bullet. I'm sorry. A bullet catch. Oh, a bullet catch. I'm yeah. sorry. A bullet catch would be, and uh, Penn and Teller still do it in Las Vegas. They use, uh, like Smith and Wesson's, uh, whatever they're like a 45 Magnum, whatever it's called. Um, so a bullet catch is, um, the magician brings out a rifle or a gun, a handgun, whatever, and bullets. And then he invites, uh, police officers or military people from the audience to come up, inspect everything. Then they mark the bullet, uh, the front of the bullet. Um, and then they, they put it, they load the chamber. And then sometimes somebody from the audience can hold the gun in the case of Penn and Teller, they both, um, they each hold one and then they, you know, it's a double bullet catch. And then you shoot the thing at the guy's face or at a plate that he's holding and he catches it on the plate or he catches it in his mouth and you spit it out and show that the bullet is, um, you know, has the same marking. I saw Penn and Teller do it on stage. I'll be honest. I have no idea how they did that trick. I have no idea. Uh, not a clue. And the bullets fire, the guns fire and every, everything looks legit. And so it's an impressive trick. Um, and people sometimes yeah, die. So and people sometimes bullet, die. bullets are flying in some form uh, or fashion. Yeah. Or, or something gets loose in the gun or there's a debris buildup from yeah. uh, webbing back in the day and, and people have died. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Sounds like a cool trick. I'll check that out. <laughs> <laughs> you can do it one time. It'd be a good skill, right? It'd be a good skill being able to catch bullets. I mean, come on. Yeah. I'm going to throw some superhero super villains at you, and okay. uh, you got to pick which one wins, all right, based on uh, <laughs> powers or whatever the hell they got going on. You ready? Or my favorite, sure. Okay. And then we'll go through the list, and then we'll circle back around and talk why you pick, why you made your picks, okay? All right. All right. Here we go. Thor versus Superman. Superman. Mm. Iron Man versus Batman. Iron Man. Captain Marvel versus Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. Black Widow versus Batwoman. Batwoman. All right, you're going to love this one. The Hulk versus Swamp Thing. Oh, that brings up a couple interesting worlds. Swamp Thing. All right. And then The Punisher versus Hawkeye. No, the Punisher would kick his ass. <laughs> All right. And then finally, Captain America versus Winter Soldier. Captain America. Thor versus Superman. You picked Superman. Right? Yes. Well, people people tend to underplay Superman's powers, but, you know, the guy can stand back a mile away and burn you with heat vision. So yeah. Thor, has, Thor has some great powers, but ultimately... If you, if you utilize all the powers that Superman has, heat vision, x-ray vision, the ability to be in outer space, I just feel like ultimately if he used everything he's got, sooner or later, Thor is going to succumb to those powers. Yeah. What is Thor's like? Does Thor have a known weakness? I don't think he has. I could be wrong about this. I don't think he has necessarily a known weakness. The, you know, they call him a guy, but technically he's just a guy from another dimension or planet, I guess. Yeah, he's an alien, just like Superman. 
Yeah, he's he's yeah. like Superman, but he's not quite as strong. Okay. I just if Superman really wanted to. If he let go, he could burn right through him with a that heat vision. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't even have to fight him. Just does it from a distance. Yeah, he's just he's usually he's too nice a guy to do it. So I'm just yeah. assuming that this would be assuming that he let go of his morals and went for it. So another interesting thing, you know, my experience, and I think uh, listeners would find interesting about the CIA is, uh, you know, there's different nicknames that especially uh, special operators have given them. One is the clowns in action, right? Um, because there was a time when you were like, man, these guys are supposed to be like high speed and you never really got that sense. If they've come a long ways though, I will tell you that. Um, and then the other one that I find even more interesting is uh, Christians in action. And, uh, and that one proved to be true in many cases where... Uh, I was on a deployment and I was working with two case officers and they both happened to be Mormon. And so we got into this discussion of the whole like, okay, what's this nickname Christians in action that, you know, I'd heard over the years and it was mostly tongue in cheek, but they were like, no, I mean, think about it, man. I mean, these are Mormons telling me like we, I grew up traveling the world, flipping people, you know, from whatever religion they were doing, if they did, or they didn't have a religion and I'm flipping them that to believe in God. And I'm like, that's genius, right? Because they've already got all this experience building rapport and then trying to get people to convert. So what's your experience with that? Well, and one other thing, they had great language skills and yes, the language missions, skills all the missionary. Yeah. So, so, and plus a couple other things, they, they more than likely didn't use drugs and they probably could pass a polygraph. So when you <laughs> yes. factor all those the things obvious. in, BYU is, is a hot spot for recruiting. And, and you could likely imagine that there's a, a political science professor there that probably is a talent spotter. And yeah. when you see people he thinks are, are, could contribute, someone makes a phone call and they're later invited to come in for an interview. Like I always say. Keep it simple because crisis will complicate the rest. Thanks for listening. And we do appreciate five stars and any comments you can put on the platform in which you're listening to this. Thanks again. Take care. Can You Survive This Podcast is a production of Calvary Audio and iHeartMedia. Recorded live from a secure location here in Dallas, Texas. Produced by Brandon Morgan, Jeff Apple, and Clint Emerson. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti. For Calvary Audio... I'm Clint Emerson. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. Exploreminnesota.com slash live.